Well, good morning, everyone. Have you ever noticed that we as human beings like to tell the same stories over and over and over again? Um, one of the, we just had Lloyd's funeral, and one of the great things about funerals is you can hear some of these stories that were told over and over and over again about uh, these various lives. We all do it. We have all experienced various things that we like to talk about. I don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with that. And if you don't believe that this is true of you, well, just ask your wife about the stories that you tell over and over and over again, and you'll soon realize, oh, yeah, I, I guess I do like to say the same thing over. Uh, we like to do this. We enjoy this. And as Christians, we all have a unique story that we have likely told, the story of how we came to know the Lord. This is a, a story that we are often asked of when we meet a new Christian. You, know, we, you find out someone's a believer, and you know the question is coming, okay, how is it that you came to know the Lord? And we have the opportunity to share that testimony. Some of our stories may be very exciting and dramatic. Oh, I grew up in a, a hard family surrounded by all kinds of horrid things, drugs, whatever else it might have been. Or maybe I grew up in this wild-eyed cult that believed all kinds of strange things and I was delivered from that. And maybe our stories aren't so exciting. Well, I grew up in a Christian family. My parents and their faithfulness explained the gospel to me, and I believed it at a young age. Well, regardless of the circumstances around the story, that story that we have is one of the most important things about us because the story isn't ultimately about us. The story is about what God has done in and through and for us, in drawing us to himself. The circumstances may all change, but at the heart of each one of our stories is a miraculous encounter with God that forever changed the course of our lives, forever changed our destinies. And these stories are very powerful things. And we're going to see an account of the Apostle Paul telling this story, giving his testimony in the book of Acts. So turn with me to Acts chapter 25. Acts chapter 25, and we're going to tackle a good-sized portion of Scripture this morning. We're going to read the rest of chapter 25 and the entirety of chapter 26, and I did the math. Last week, I did about 12 verses. This is almost four times as much, so if I take four times the amount of time this morning, you'll know why. Uh, it won't take that long, Lord willing. Uh, but anyway, Acts chapter 25, starting at verse 13. Now when several days had passed, King Agrippa and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. And while they were spending many days there, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There is a man who is left as a prisoner by Felix. And when I was in Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews brought charges against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. 
I answered them that it is not the custom of the Romans to hand over any man before the accused meets his accusers face to face and has an opportunity to make his defense against the charges. So after they had assembled here, I did not delay, but on the next day I took my seat on, ju- took my seat on the judgment seat and ordered that the man be brought before me. When the accusers stood up, they were not bringing any charges against him for the evil deeds I was expecting. But they had some points of disagreement with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus, a man whom Paul asserted, a dead man whom Paul asserted to be alive. And being perplexed about how to investigate such matters, I was asked whether he was willing to go to Jerusalem and there be tried on these matters. But when Paul appealed to be held in custody for the emperor's decision, I ordered him to be kept in custody until I send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I also would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, he said, you shall hear him. So on the next day, Agrippa came together with Bernice amid great pomp and entered the hall accompanied by the commanders and the prominent men of the city. At the order of Festus, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa, And all you gentlemen here present with us, you see this man about whom all the people of the Jews appealed to me, both at Jerusalem and here, loudly declaring that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had committed nothing worthy of death, and since he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to send him. Yet I have nothing definite about him to write to my Lord." Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after the investigation has taken place, I might have something to write. For it seemed absurd to me in sending a prisoner not to indicate also the charges against him. Now Agrippa said to Paul, you are permitted to speak for yourself. Then Paul, stretching out his hand, began to make his defense. Concerning all the things of which I am accused by the Jews, I regard myself blessed, King Agrippa, that I am about to make my defense before you today, especially because you are an expert in all customs and questions among the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently, so that all Jews know my manner of life from my youth, which from the beginning was spent among my own nation at Jerusalem. Since they have known about me for a long time, if they are willing to testify that I lived as a Pharisee according to the strictest sect of our religion. And now I'm standing here being tried for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers, the promise to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly serve God night and day. And for this hope, O King, I am being accused by the Jews." Why is it considered unbelievable among all of you if God does raise the dead? So then I thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus the Nazarene. And this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prisons, having received authority from the chief priests, but also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. And as I punished them often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme. And being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. While so engaged, I was journeying to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining all around me and those who were journeying with me. 
And when we had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise up and stand on your feet. For this purpose I have appeared to you to appoint you a servant and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things in which I will appear to you, rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the authority of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. So, King Agrippa, I did not prove disobedient by, to the heavenly vision, but kept declaring both to those of Damascus first and also at Jerusalem and then throughout all the region of Judea and even to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God, practicing deeds appropriate to repentance. For this reason, some Jews seized me in the temple and were trying to put me to death. Therefore, having obtained help from God to this day, I stand here bearing witness both to the small and great, stating nothing but what the prophets and Moses said was going to take place, that the Christ was to suffer, and that as first of the resurrection from the dead, he was going to proclaim light both to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. Now, while Paul was saying this in his defense, Festus said in a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I utter words of sober truth. For the king knows about these matters, and I speak to him also with confidence, since I am persuaded that none of these things escape his notice. For this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. But Agrippa replied to Paul, in such a short time, are you persuading me to become a Christian? And Paul said, I would pray to God that whether in short or long time, not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. And the king stood up and the governor and Bernice and all and those who were sitting with him. And when they had gone aside, they began talking to one another, saying, this man is not doing anything worthy of death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we do thank you for this time that we have together to read your word, to see the story of the Apostle Paul, to consider our own story, the story of you and of your love towards us through Jesus Christ. I pray that we would be strengthened by this, that we would be equipped by this to go out and tell that story in the way that the Apostle Paul did. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Whoosh! Now that that introduction is over with, uh, let's get into it. So we, let's first we need to remember the scene. The Apostle Paul is in Caesarea at this point in time. He's been in prison for about two years. Last time we looked at the Apostle uh, Paul and his trial before Festus where he appeals to Caesar. Remember, he's kind of in between a rock and a hard place. If he goes to Jerusalem, he's going to be put to death. Festus is unwilling to make a decision out of fear of the Jews. So then Paul does what, the right, what, uh, what every Roman citizen has the right to do and appeals to Caesar that his case be heard before him. 
And as we remember, this ultimately is in accordance with what God had said to him, that Paul would go to Rome. The book of Acts is following this uh, growth, this expansion of the gospel from Jerusalem into Judea and Samaria all the way to the ends of the earth. Rome would have been considered the hub of the world. All roads lead to Rome, and therefore Rome leads to all places. And Paul uh, hoped to get to Rome with the expectation that he'd, from Rome, be able to go to Spain, which would have been the very ends of the earth uh, in in his mind at that point in time. So this is all within God's plan. Uh, God is working out all of these things. Uh, We catch up to him here, and Festus is pretty perplexed. Uh, He's not quite sure what to make of the case of Paul. On the one hand, he has no real reason to hold him. He has no real reason to put him to death. On the other hand, he's appealed to Caesar, and he has to send him to Caesar, and he has to give Caesar an explanation as to why he's going. So he enlists the help of Agrippa, King Agrippa, who we are introduced to here. Uh, We don't know King Agrippa yet, but we do know King Agrippa's family. We ran into, and uh, we we may know a little bit better if we uh, know Agrippa's full name, Herod Agrippa II. Right? We met uh, Agrippa's father earlier on in the book of Acts. This was the Herod who was ruling at the time that James the Apostle was put to death and that Peter was taken. Remember, uh, we remember that Herod uh, was proclaimed as a god. And because of his pride, because he did not refute this, he was struck down by God and put to death. Well, this is his son. Uh, Herod Agrippa II, the son of Herod and the grandson of Herod the Great, the Herod who attempted to put Jesus to death. Herod uh, Agrippa II ruled over portions of Israel in the north and the east, and he had some degree of power within the Jewish religious system. He had the authority to select the Jewish high priest, and he himself was considered to be a very pious Jew and had knowledge of Jewish affairs. And this is likely why uh, Festus had enlisted the help of Agrippa. The question seemed to be a matter regarding Jewish law, Jewish belief, and because Agrippa had some understanding of that, perhaps Agrippa could help Festus understand what exactly the controversy was so he can give some reason that he is sending Paul to Caesar. And with Herod, uh, Agrippa is his sister, Bernice. Uh, This sister was widowed after her husband, who was also her uncle, died a couple years earlier. After she was widowed, she went to live with her brother, Agrippa. And this move, uh, with this move came all kinds of rampant rumors, rumors of an incestuous affair between the two, Uh, rumors that, well, we know the family history and we know their marital practices, so we may be able to assume that there may have been some truth to that. So uh, they're quite the interesting couple. And they're there visiting Caesarea in order to show their respect to Festus, this newly appointed governor. So he takes the opportunity to bring the case of Paul before Agrippa. And Agrippa agrees. So we continue on. The next day, an audience is held. Verse 23 sets the scene for us. On the next day, Agrippa came together with Bernice amid great pomp and entered the hall accompanied by the commanders and the prominent men of the city. At the order of Festus, Paul was brought in. 
So this isn't just a, a private meeting. You know, uh, Agrippa doesn't just go down to Paul's cell to hear his story. What we have here really is a, a grand affair. They're in uh, uh, Herod's, uh, Herod's former palace, so this great majestic building. They go to the auditorium at this place, and uh, we have to imagine you know, all kinds of seats, all kinds of statues, uh, lush colors and things like that. And we see that this occasion brought all kinds of very prominent people. Commanders and prominent men of the city were brought in so that they could hear the testimony of Paul. So we can almost picture almost like a very sophisticated party right? Uh, perhaps there's a band that is playing and giving entertainment. Uh, maybe uh, there's waitresses walking around with their hors d'oeuvres, handing them out to people, right? We, know, uh, we may have some idea of what this looked like. Luke describes it as great pomp. So Agrippa is probably in his scarlet robes of the king. Uh, Festus probably in his, uh, his, his red robes uh, of the governor. Uh, and Bernice probably dressed to the nines. Everyone's in their Sunday best. And in the midst of this great pomp, walks in the Apostle Paul. Now, Paul, uh, by all accounts, was certainly not the most impressive person to look at, uh, I'm sure. The Corinthians, uh, one of the charges that was laid up against the Apostle Paul is, oh, he sounds high and mighty and powerful in his letters, but in person, that guy's just a, a weak little wimp, right? Uh, he, he, the power that he had in his letters is not present in his person. We have uh, one description of the Apostle Paul. It's, uh, not, it's in extra-biblical literature. We can't necessarily take it for granted, but this is how Paul is described in one source. A man of little stature, thin hair upon his head, crooked in the legs, a good state of body, with eyebrows joining, a nose somewhat hooked, full of grace. Now what an unlikely place for such an unlikely person to be, standing before the most powerful men in the region with the opportunity to share the reason of why he is there. And this is ultimately in fulfillment of the scriptures, of what Jesus had told his followers. Jesus in Luke's gospel says, Before all these things, they will lay their hands on you and will persecute you, delivering you to the synagogues and prisons, bringing you before kings and governors for my name's sake. And what's the purpose of this? It will lead to an opportunity for your testimony. So why are you here? Why are you brought before these people? So that you can testify of Jesus. And this is what Paul was even told uh, when he was first called. The Lord said to him, uh, Ananias, remember Paul told uh, this man to, uh, the Lord told this man to go collect the Apostle Paul. Uh, this is before he was the Apostle Paul. This is when he was still persecuting the church. Ananias says, you know who this guy is, right? And this is the Lord's reply. Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of of Israel. So what incredibly unlikely circumstances, and yet these are the circumstances that God himself has orchestrated. Now, 
we may find ourselves, too, in similar circumstance. I'm not going to say we're all going to be brought before kings and rulers and, and things like that, but we do know that God does give us opportunities to testify, opportunities to share of what Jesus has done. And these opportunities may be in very intimidating circumstances, right? Uh, there may be people who are in power over us, people who are in higher positions over us, people maybe in a higher class than we are, people who we may otherwise be very intimidated by. And when opportunities to share, to give our testimony arise, something that I can only say this about myself, something that I can be very good at is talking myself out of it, right? Uh, talking myself out of it. Now, this, this really isn't the right time. This really isn't the right place. I mean, these really aren't the right people. Uh, this person's way too sophisticated, way too uh, uppity, whatever else. They're not going to be interested. They're not going to be uh, listening to me. We're very good at trying to shut the doors that God opens for us in order to do this. But, uh, and we see here, uh, you know, we're very good at saying this isn't the right time, this isn't the right place, and this, these aren't the right people. Well, for the Apostle Paul, this was hardly the right time, and this was hardly the right place, and these were hardly the right people to be sharing this before. Remember, the whole goal is we need something to write to Rome as we send them there as a prisoner. That's their goal. Paul's goal was, hey, I'm going to tell them about Jesus. And that's what leads into his testimony. Uh, Paul begins to share his testimony. He begins his story with his resume, explaining who he is, right? Uh, we, we read uh, Paul say that uh, concerning these things, I make my defense to you today, uh, and he appeals to the fact that he is a Jew, right? Uh, and he appeals to the fact that all Jews know that he is a Jew. He's a devout Jew. He's been a Jew his entire life, and the Jews living in Jerusalem could even attest to this. Not only was he Jewish, but he was a Pharisee of the strictest sect of Judaism, the most pious expression of Judaism you could find at the time, right? Uh, you want to find the, the super Jews, the people who knew just about everything you could need to know? You want to find a Pharisee. And Paul said, I was that guy. Uh, so he really was, the, uh, the Jews who had brought him in, he really was just like them. And then he states the reason for his trial. Uh, and the reason for his trial is ultimately that he believed in the promise that God had made to the people. He believed in the promises that God had made uh, and the hope that was held by all devout Jews, right? Verse 6, And now I'm standing here being tried for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers, the promises to which our twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly serve God night and day, and for this hope I am being accused of the Jews. So Paul is saying, I did not deviate from what was taught to me. I did not deviate from what the fathers had to say. Rather, I am being prosecuted for this very reason, because of my hope in what God had said in the scriptures. A hope in life after death that is found ultimately through Christ. The idea of a resurrection is not a New Testament belief. 
It is, it's taught in the New Testament, but it didn't come from the New Testament. The idea of the resurrection from the dead is found way back in the Old Testament, way back in the earliest books. Think of Job, what he said. Job, perhaps the earliest uh, writing that we have. Uh, you know, it could at least be tied in there with uh, Genesis, with the, the, the first books. And Job is confident that though I may die in my flesh, I will see God. So there's the hope of the resurrection. And we find this throughout the rest of the scriptures. The great promise we find in Isaiah. He will swallow up death for all time. The Lord will wipe away tears from all faces. He will remove the reproach from his peoples on the earth. The Lord has spoken. He goes on, your dead will live. Their corpses will rise. You who lie in the dust, awake and shout for joy. For your dew is as the dew of the dawn and the earth will give birth to the departed saints. The resurrection is the great hope that we can all have. Because if this life is it, well then, eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow we die. That's the end. What's the point? What hope can we have beyond this? But Paul says, no, our hope as a people has always been in life beyond this. In life that God gives a life that we have through faith in him. And I am here because of that hope that I have. He goes on and he says, why is it considered unbelievable among all of you if God does raise the dead? And you'll notice that Paul's reasoning here is grounded ultimately in the promises that God has made in Scripture. And that's where our testimony ultimately needs to be grounded in as well, the promises that God has made. We're not making up something new. We're not coming up with new ideas. What we're doing is we're seeing with the promises that God has made, and we're seeing how they are ultimately fulfilled in Christ. We're believing in them. We're simply repeating what they had said. And that's why our testimony isn't ultimately about us. Our testimony ultimately must point to God and what he has said in his word and how God has been faithful to fulfill all of the promises that he has made. And we can think about this in our own lives. What are some of the promises in scripture that really drove us to Christ? What are some of the passages that we find that we cling to in our own lives? John 3.16, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. What a great promise to cling to. What a great promise so many of us cling to. And Paul is clinging to these very same promises. And in Paul's testimony, something that he does not leave out is his own sinful past. Because Paul was not always where he is then. Paul was once counted among those who did not believe in these promises, who were antagonistic against these promises as they are ultimately fulfilled in Christ. Paul was once where his accusers are, a persecutor of Christ. And he doesn't sugarcoat it. He describes his hostility to Christ. It was Paul's desire ultimately that the name of Christ be wiped off the face of the earth. And he describes the wicked and horrible actions that he committed against the saints of God. Cast them in prison, cast his vote for their deaths, chased them out of town, and when they ran, he chased after them all the more, tried to force them to blaspheme. Paul was a horrid, wicked sinner, and he knew it. Paul was a man who was not worthy of the grace of God, 
not finding, he was not worthy of finding favor, favor with God, and he deserved nothing more than God's judgment. Paul did not sugarcoat his sinful past. He did not sugarcoat his rebellion. He did not make excuses for it. And when we're talking about our own testimony, neither should we, right? Something that we like to do as, as a human race is we like to, to dull our sin. We like to downplay it. We, we like to present it as, oh, it's, it's not as bad as it sounds. It's not as bad as it really is. Uh, but we need to recognize all of us were in the very same position that Paul was. Our sin may not have been uh, expressed in such gross ways, and yet we are still worthy of death. We don't need to necessarily get into the gory details, but we can't downplay what we have been saved from. The, in a world saturated with sin, we tend to forget the severity of it, but that's not what Paul does, and that's not what we can do, especially as we consider what we have been rescued from. So this is where Paul was. This is where we were. But what changed? Well, an encounter with Jesus. It is when Paul was on the way chasing these Christians, which he had driven out of town, on the road to Damascus, that he has knocked off his horse and confronted with the risen Lord Jesus. Paul, Paul, or Saul, Saul in this case, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And this is kind of an interesting picture, kicking against the goads. Some people may describe it as, uh, well, Paul's conscience was uh, really aggravating him as he did this. There was something in him telling him that, that this was wrong, and it was a very painful thing for him to do to do this. Uh, that Maybe, but... Uh, the, the picture that's presented here, kicking against the goads, that's something that an ox would do. A, an ox, as it's being trained to plow or whatever else it would be, uh, in order to keep that ox in line, the person driving the ox would have a goad, a long, sharp stick. And the ox would try to, to kick off his harness and, and things along these lines. And in order to keep that ox in order, the driver would use the stick, hold it behind the ox's foot, so then it would prick itself, hopefully, ultimately, to uh, become obedient. Well, in a way, this is what Paul was doing in his life. By persecuting Christians, Paul was actively working against the will of God that he believed that he was serving. Just as an ox is working against the will of his master when he kicks and fights only to find his uh, heel struck by a goad, Paul, in the same way, is fighting against God's will in his life, the same way that an unruly beast fights against the goads of his master. And then Jesus is saying, it's hard for you to do this. Do not kick against the goads. It is hard for you to kick against the goads because God ultimately had a different purpose for Paul. And that purpose that he had for Paul was to appoint him as a witness to the Gentiles. In fact, this is the reason that Paul was born. Right? This wasn't just a snap decision on the part of the Lord. This wasn't the Lord saying, hmm, who's out there that I could choose? Oh, that Apostle Paul guy, he seems pretty zealous. Maybe I can turn him around. Uh, no. Paul recognizes that 
I was born for this very purpose. This is why I'm here on this earth, to walk according to the will of my master. In Galatians chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, Paul says, God set me apart even from my mother's womb and called me through his grace and was pleased to reveal his son to me that I might preach him among the Gentiles. What an amazing thing, especially when we consider the sinful past of Paul. And God did this in spite of that rebellion. And in fact, that rebellion even in Paul's past life had the purpose in God showing his grace at that present time. And that's exactly what Paul says to Timothy. He says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. Yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly and in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. Yet for this reason I found mercy, so that in me as the foremost of sinners, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. And isn't that the place we find ourselves? Sinners before God, and yet Paul says, look at me, and look at the grace of God that completely overwhelms my sin. And you can know that this is true of you as well through faith in Christ. Conversion to Christ isn't simply turning over a new leaf, right? It's not embracing a new philosophy. It's not deciding on a better way of life. It's not just filling up your Sunday morning because you don't have anything better to do. Coming to Christ ultimately isn't a change that we make. It's a change that God makes in us for his own glory, and for his own purposes. And we can certainly talk about the means that God uses to bring this change about, right? Godly parents pouring the gospel into us, a preacher, an evangelist sharing the good news with us, a Bible camp, a gospel tract, in Paul's case, literally getting knocked down by the risen Lord Jesus. We can talk about all of these things, but we need to recognize that Every single conversion ultimately is a supernatural work that God has done in us. In John's gospel, John tells us, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. If you have come to faith in Christ, you have been born of God. That's something that God did to you. Ezekiel makes it even more plain. God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. It's all about what God has done in changing me. That's why my testimony is ultimately a testimony of God and his faithfulness and his love. 
So we continue reading. How does Paul respond to this change? How does Paul respond to this radical new call that he has received? So King Agrippa, verse 19, I did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision. So how is it that Paul ended up where he is? Well, ultimately, because he walked in obedience to God and to the purposes that God has placed on his life. His kicking against the goads has ended. He's now walking in obedience to the, God, uh, to the call that God has made. And we see his obedience immediately after his conversion. What's the first thing that he does when he, uh, after he can see when he gets to Damascus? Well, he begins to go to the synagogues and says, Jesus is the Christ. Right? Uh, so we see this change. Uh, he calls on people to repent and turn to Christ uh, uh, and then to act according to that newfound faith that they have. Just like Paul's, uh, and for us, we can recognize too, just as Paul's salvation story is tied with a change of his life, with a change in his direction, our salvation story, well, we recognize that it wouldn't be much if it wasn't accompanied with that lasting change, with that evidence of change. Now let me ask you this. Would you take someone's testimony seriously if they showed no evidence of their newfound faith? I want to point to a biblical example of this. I'm going to point to Jonah. Now Jonah was at the same time one of the best and one of the worst evangelists in the world. Jonah, uh, we see Jonah when he is called by God. What does he do? Well, he goes the other way. I'm not going to Nineveh. I don't want to share the gospel with those people. I don't care about them. And a storm arises because of Jonah. And it's determined that, hey, this storm's hitting the boat because of Jonah. And the, uh, the sailors confront him and they say, tell us, on whose account has this calamity struck us? What is your occupation and where do you come from? Where is your country? From what people are you? And Jonah said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. And then the men became extremely frightened and they said to them, how could you do this? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. So on the one hand, I fear the Lord, and yet I'm running in the exact opposite direction of where the Lord has placed me. Now, horrible evangelist, horrible testimony, and yet uh, he's one of the best evangelists in the world too because we see after he's thrown out of the boat, these sailors are offering sacrifices to the Lord. Um, uh, Jonah, he, he goes to Nineveh, the place they didn't want to go, spends the minimum amount of time there possible telling them uh, the Lord's going to destroy this city. And then he leaves so he can watch the destruction of the city. And what happens? The Lord turns Nineveh towards himself. And that's why our stories are ultimately about God, right? They're ultimately about what God has done in us. Are, but are we reflecting that in our own lives? Are we uh, being, are we, like Paul, not proving disobedient to the heavenly vision, to the heavenly call, which we all have been given as coming to Christ, right? Uh, imagine uh, hearing that, uh, imagine living such a life after coming to Christ that people are shocked to hear that you profess the name of Christ, right? We, we've all met uh, people who uh, just look just like the world, living just like the world. But then you start to ask them about what they believe, and they may say, oh, yeah, I believe in the Bible. I trust in the Lord Jesus. And you say, how does that work? 
It doesn't because of that massive disconnect. Just like James says, uh, what use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but he has no works? Can that faith save him? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? This is not a charge that could be brought against the Apostle Paul. His life lined up with his testimony. How does that look for us? Does our life match our testimony? Is our testimony backing, is our life backing up the claims that we make? Because remember, this is ultimately not our story. It's God's story. How are we reflecting the living God in whose image we are created? Finally, we see the response to Paul's testimony. Paul kept saying this in his defense, and Festus said in a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Now, how many of us have had relatives or friends that we share the great news? I've come to know the Lord. The Lord has saved me through his death in the Lord Jesus Christ. How many of our friends after that looked at us like we were crazy, right? Because the story, it's such a true story, such a wonderful story, but our world has fallen so far away from God's truth that sanity sounds insane, right? And this sounded insane to Festus, right? Festus' worldview is that there was no uh, resurrection, and if there was, you wouldn't want it. You don't want to live in the flesh. You don't want to live in this body. You want to escape that. You want to get out of that. Uh, A resurrection would be the worst thing possible. Uh, So he thinks Paul is out of his mind. Paul uh, uh, then turns his attention to Agrippa, appeals to his knowledge of the scriptures, saying, Agrippa, you know the scriptures, and you know of the things that I've talked about. These things did not happen in secret. These things did not happen in a corner. Agrippa had likely heard much of this before. And Paul is saying, Agrippa, you know the scriptures. You know that what I'm saying is true. Uh, You know that the scriptures are true. And uh, Agrippa knew exactly what Paul was trying to do. He says, in such a short time, will you persuade me to become a Christian? Well, that's the goal, isn't it? Why should we ultimately tell our testimony? Because we want that testimony to be true of those who hear it, isn't it? Paul's ultimate goal is conversion. Paul's ultimate goal isn't to win arguments. It's not to look good in front of everyone. It's not to excite people with his story, but it's ultimately to drive people to Christ. And Felix knew this. Would people be able to say the same of our own testimonies? Well, we all have a testimony to share. If we've trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, we all have that story to tell, the story of Jesus and his love. And we have been commissioned by God to share that story so that other people could experience that, can experience the risen Lord and have the life that we enjoy. If we have a testimony, if we have come to faith in Christ, God has given us everything that we need. As Paul says, if, any was in, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against him, and he committed us to the word of reconciliation. 
Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. And we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So here, in this case of Paul, we have an excellent example of how Christians can take their testimony and use it to point to Christ. God has given us a story to tell. Let's take the opportunity to tell it. As the old hymn says, I love to tell the story of unseen things above, of Jesus and his glory, of Jesus and his love. I love to tell the story because I know it is true. It satisfies my longings as nothing else can do. I love to tell the story. It will be my theme and glory to tell the old, old story of Jesus and his love. Let us go tell that story. Our Father, we are thankful for this time that we have together. We're thankful that we all share that story in common, the story of Jesus and his love for us. And you show this great love by sending him to this world to die in our place. He is now seated at your right hand forever to intercede to all who would draw near to him. Let us act as faithful ambassadors to our risen Lord. Let us tell this great story so that this story might be for all others to tell. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.